The next day, John was there again, and with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and follow, who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simeon and tell him, Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the, in the law, and the one about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Keith, for... Uh both praying and, and reading. Just a couple of things from prayer I just want to highlight, you know. That's pretty incredible. Angie's dad has no traceable cancer in his bone marrow. Like hokey doodle. That's unbelievable. Praise the Lord, eh? That's amazing. And um, Joelle's, uh, we've been praying for Joelle. She had a blood patch. Two days later, after five, how long was she in the hospital for? Five weeks? Five and a half weeks in hospital, nothing happening. Finally, uh, her husband had a bit of a freak out on the doctors and said, okay, we got to do something. Let's do this blood patch thing. Astounding as well. So just a lot to be very, 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 very grateful for. Um, so we are in our final look here on uh, neighboring and the role that hospitality plays in the life of a Christian, particularly uh, as it relates to uh, the people around us who maybe don't know God in the way that we know Him and don't know Jesus Christ as, as a Savior the way that we know Jesus Christ. And what we've been saying is, is that through our relationships with the people around us as neighbors, through particularly our ministry of hospitality, 
That is, opening our lives, opening our homes to the people around us and sharing life with them. We hope and pray that, that they will encounter Jesus Christ. And, and basically, we're, we're trying to unpack practical ways for us to fulfill the great command, right? The great command is to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And, and last week, we talked about um, margins. We talked about creating the space in our lives, both financially and in terms of time, these two great um, commodities, so to speak, or, or these two great assets or possessions that, that we have, how do we create margin uh, in our lives in order to practice hospitality well? Because the, the fact of the matter is, is that we are often very, very scheduled, very, very busy, you know, uh, and our budgets are often very, very tight. Our money is earmarked for specific things. I, I was reading an article on, I don't even, I can't remember what it was on. I don't know. A good article, though, like really impactful. Um, and in this article, this, this author, not a Christian, but a very brilliant author, the, she made this point, and she said, you know, there's two things that human beings, in our culture anyway, we value very, very highly. The one is money, and the other is time. These are two things that are very important to us. But she said, and this is so true, she said, the one, when we have lots of the one, people look up to us. And if we have lots of the other, people tend to look down on us. Now think about this. In our culture, if you have a lot of money, people look up to you and they say, oh man, look at that, very successful person, very smart person, obviously. They've done very well for themselves. And oh man, I'm very impressed by that person. But what if you have a lot of time? Well, look at that bum. Do something with yourself, twiddling around, fiddling around with your fingers, doing nothing. You should be productive because that's what we believe really, really matters in our culture, that we be productive. And what's a sign of successful productivity? Lots of money. Isn't that interesting? I'm, I just wanted to share that with you. It's not even really connected to anything in particular other than it leads me to be able to refer you to this incredible quote on the front of your bulletins. I, I discovered this after last week's message, and, and, but it's so good, I, I still wanted to share it with you. This is from Henry Nouwen. How many of you are familiar with Henry Nouwen? Okay, a few of you. Henry Nouwen is, was a Catholic priest. He's, he's passed away now. An absolute brilliant scholar. He taught at Yale Divinity School, then at Harvard Divinity School. He was a world-renowned scholar who basically at one point in his life, he, he said, this is, this is not what my life ought to be about. He left the scholarly world where he was on track to become a superstar and he joined L'Arche. You know what L'Arche is? L'Arche is a, a community of, of people living together, people with very serious uh, disabilities, mental and physical disabilities living with uh, caregivers in small communities. He came to Toronto, and he worked for L'Arche in, in not complete anonymity, but, you know, he's no longer uh, the great, brilliant scholar. And anyhow, the reason I tell you that part is because I think that gives credence, that lends credibility to this quotation. Listen to what he says. More and more, 
the desire grows in me simply to walk around, greet people, enter their homes, sit on their doorsteps, play ball, throw water, and be known as someone who wants to live with them. It's a privilege to have the time to practice the simple ministry of presence. Still, it is not as simple as it seems. My own desire to be useful <laughs> and to do something significant or to be part of some impressive project is so strong that soon my time is taken up by meetings, conferences, study groups, and workshops that prevent me from walking the streets. It is difficult not to have plans, not to organize people around an urgent cause, and not to feel that you are working directly for social progress. But I wonder more and more if the first thing shouldn't be to know people by name, to eat and drink with them, to listen to their stories and tell your own, and to let them know with words, handshakes, and hugs that you do not simply like them, but truly Love them. Cut this thing out and stick it on your fridge. And every time, this is what my wife is making me do lately. Every time you get an invitation to do something, go look at that and think about it. And ask yourself, should I do this? This thing may be a good thing to do. This and you might not even know what that something else is. So, for example, I occasionally get asked to preach in other places, and I always ask Jessica, what do you think? Should I go preach there? And she always says no. <laughs> and I'm like, because why? Because you love me so much and want to spend time with me? She says, well, no, that's not really it. It's because if you say yes to that, you can't be here in case we have an opportunity to be hospitable, to have somebody over after church or to have somebody from the neighborhood come over for an impromptu barbecue because we're home and we're around and we're available. Put this on your fridge and use it to recalibrate your life so that you can be open and available for the opportunities that God will inevitably, I promise you, He will inevitably provide them. Last Sunday... Two different people told me of neighboring experiences they had as a result, I, I don't know, not as a result of my sermon, but I'd like to think so, but as a result of practicing a little bit what, what we were talking about. It will happen. Okay, so that's sort of introduction. I don't know what that was. That was pre-sermon stuff. Now we're into the sermon, the introduction of the sermon. What we're going to talk about today is we're going to think through together the why and the how of introducing people to Jesus through hospitality. Like, why am I making this such a big deal? Why can't you just invite them to church or give them a book or, or you know, uh, give them a gospel track or something like that? Why is, why is this so important? And, and if it is so important, how in the world do you kind of practice this and go about it? That's what we're going to look at from our text this morning. And you can see the outline on the back of the on the back of the uh, bulletin, we've got only three points, so we should go really, really quickly. Here we go. Why? Why is this the way that we ought to introduce people to Jesus Christ? Well, there's a certain rationale that our text expresses for us that is important 
for us to recognize and consider. You'll notice that in a whole bunch of places through this passage, people are being invited to look or to come and see. So for example, here we go, verse 36, John the Baptist saw Jesus passing by and he said, look, the Lamb of God. Verse 39, come, he replied, and you will see. This is Jesus speaking to these disciples. In verse 46, we read, um, no, sorry, not verse 46. In verse, uh, oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, sorry, verse 46. Nathaniel asks Andrew, you know, can anything good come out of, or Philip asks Philip, can anything good come out of um, Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. And then in verse 50, Jesus says, you will see greater things than that. What's happening in this passage is, is you're seeing a pattern. You're seeing John the Baptist leads Andrew to Jesus and says, come meet Jesus. And then Andrew goes to Peter and he says, hey, I got I to introduce you to someone. And he, he leads Peter to Jesus. Then Philip leads Nathaniel to Jesus. What's going on? There's a very important principle at work here, okay? Christianity as a religion, as a faith, is an encounter with a person. First and foremost, the gospel is about an encounter with a person. It is not in first and foremost, it is not a teaching, it is not a philosophy, it is not a system of thought, it is not even a way of life. It is first and foremost an encounter with a person. Now, yes, there's lots of teaching in the Bible and there's lots of philosophy in the Bible and it gives a way of life, but primarily... Primarily, it is an encounter with a person. See, if Christianity was primarily a philosophy or a teaching or a way of life or a system of thought or something like that, it would be totally good enough to go up to someone and say, hey, read this and you can be introduced to Christianity. Or listen to this message or... Uh, watch these videos, or even come to church and listen to my minister. All these things would, would be good enough because basically what you're saying is, here's the information. I'm presenting you with the information. You take the information. You digest the information. And if you follow what the information tells you to do, boom, you can be a Christian. Okay? And just to test whether this is actually true, what I did was I, I went on... Uh, WikiHow, you know what WikiHow is? WikiHow, one of those websites. You can, how do you do something? WikiHow will tell you how to do it. So what I did was I went on WikiHow, and I basically I asked this question: um, How to become a? And then I filled in the blank: a Muslim, uh, a Jew, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Christian. How to become? And every how-to was a list of practices and principles that you were supposed to follow, except Christianity was different. It talked about this getting to know this Jesus and, and repenting of your sin and putting your faith in this person, Jesus Christ. It was all this relational language. And that's because in the gospel, what you are called to do is to meet Jesus and to know him. There's a place in John chapter 17 where, where Jesus is actually praying to his father. He's in a conversation with his father. And listen to what he says. This is verse 3. He says, this is eternal life. So this is salvation. This is the Christian faith. Here's a summary of it. 
that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing Jesus as at the heart of the Christian faith. Okay, well, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to know Jesus? And can I just say, this is astounding, okay? Go ahead and study the religions of the world. Not a single one of the great religions of the world advocates that, that the whole goal of their religion is that you would have a relationship with the divine. No, 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 no. You just submit to Allah. There is no divine in Buddhism for you to have a relationship with. There's about 370 million uh, gods in Hinduism, and uh, you're just supposed to try to kind of unite yourself to the one God and, and lose your personality. In Christianity alone, are you invited to actually know a personal being and have some kind of real, actual relationship with him? And what does that look like? Well... I'm trying to figure this out. That's a good question. Um, some of you have had childhood friends that you grew up with, and, and you are so tight with that friend that you know them almost completely, right? You, so you know what they're thinking when you're talking about something. You, you could almost finish their sentences for them. Some of you maybe are twins, and you grew up with, like, you know, the, one of those weird secret languages that twins sometimes have? And it all sounds like Romulan from Star Trek. But anyhow, you, you're so tight. You're so in tune with one another. I've actually even heard that there are twins who, who can live miles and miles apart. And the one twin gets hurt and physically and the other twin feels pain. Now, that's just kind of weird, I admit, and wiggity. But it gets across this idea that two individuals, two people can be so closely in sync with one another, that they know each other completely, right? That's, that's what Jesus is talking about. See, knowing someone, it can mean a bunch of different things. You've got like 250 Facebook friends. And you look on Facebook and you know that this person went to the Caribbean last Christmas for a vacation and you know where they work and you know what kind of education they have and you saw that they had a birthday party to go to last weekend because they posted pictures and stuff like that. And if I said to you, well, do you know so-and-so? You'd be like, well, I know who they are. I know some stuff about their life and that kind of thing. But do you know them? No, you don't know them. Not like that childhood friend. What does all that have to do with hospitality? Just this. People are introduced to Jesus through people. That's how real relationships work. You introduce someone to someone else, and, and you say this person, so your neighbor's... If you're in any kind of relationship with your neighbor, they need to get their roof done. And they ask you, do you know, you know someone who could do my roof? And you say, yeah, I know a guy. And this guy is, it's Bob, and Bob's a really good roofer, and he does really good prices. You should give him a, a call. Now, your neighbor doesn't know Bob himself, but he knows you. And because he knows you and because he trusts you and because he appreciates your opinion and it matters to him, he gives Bob a call. And he says, come give me an estimate on my roof. 
That's natural. That's how relationships develop. Most of us, frankly, believe, a lot of the things we believe and hold on to are, are because we're part of a community that believes and holds on to those things. Now, this isn't a sociological way of explaining away religion. I'm not saying that you're only a Christian because you're here with a whole bunch of Christians and since they all drank the Kool-Aid, you drank the Kool-Aid too. Of course, there are, there are, we have to weigh evidence and we have to wrestle with claims and we have to, we have to struggle with truth versus falsehood and, and understand Jesus on his own terms. But the fact of the matter is, is that most of us come into a relationship with other people through people. And most of the time when people are in, are encounter Jesus, they've been introduced to him by someone that they deem trustworthy. And they say, well, if that guy believes in Jesus and he's not a complete nut job, maybe it's worth considering myself. You know, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says something very interesting. He says this. This is verse 15. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give them the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I know that's a convoluted sentence, but what he's saying is, is that when you set apart Christ as Lord, when Jesus is your everything, when he is your king and he is your master and he is your ruler and you would die for him because he did die for you, when that is who you are, there are going to be people in relationship with you who are going to ask about that. They just are. Why do you have this hope in you? Why do you have this glow about you? Why do you always seem to be able to see the silver lining behind the clouds of life? What's going on with you? Will your neighbor ask? Maybe not. This isn't a guarantee that everyone will ask. But if you're not in relationship with them, they definitely won't. This is the why, okay? This is not... You're not inviting people into a religion, into a system. You're inviting them into a relationship with their divine creator. That's why over and over again it says, come and see. Come and see. Okay. Point one, the why. All right, point two. Well, how do we do this? How do we introduce Jesus through hospitality I think, first of all, again, let me just pause and say to anybody here who is wondering, maybe you're not a Christian and you're hearing this and you're like, what am I in the middle of? Uh, am I in the middle of like some kind of weird strategy session with a bunch of Christians who are like trying to figure out the best way to suck me into their weird way of life? No, it's not that disingenuous, I promise you. And this is why. Very brief simple gospel presentation that you need to hear. The gospel is this. Jesus lived the life I should have lived and he died the death I should have died. Through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ who lived perfectly and died in my place, I can have a relationship with God if I would put my trust in Jesus. What that means is, is the Christian faith is a relationship of grace. It is a religion of grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. I don't deserve the kindness that God has showered upon me. I have not earned it in any way. 
I've not made myself worthy of it in any way. It is all a free gift, totally. This is why sharing the gospel with your neighbor through hospitality is not disingenuous. Because Christianity is a religion of grace, it means that God doesn't love me more and I don't win any more points with Him and I'm no closer to heaven if I do share Jesus with my neighbor than if I don't. So there's no person here who is like, yeah, this is the way that I get a, you know, I get a little further up the ladder to heaven by doing this. No, no, no. The only reason anybody would do this is because of the same reason that you would share if you had a friend who had cancer and was dying and you knew that a certain treatment was 100% effective with that cancer, you would tell them about it. You would share it with them. You would, you would encourage them to talk to your specialist and go get an appointment and get a prescription for, I don't know if you can get prescriptions for chemo, but you know what I mean. Because for their sake, you want them to experience the same thing you have. You're not doing it to win points with anybody. Because the wonder of the Christian faith is, is that we don't win points. Because Jesus won all the points for us. Now, that's just to show you that this is not being disingenuous. How do we introduce Jesus through hospitality? There's four things in this passage that we can just tick off very quickly. The first one in verse 41 through 43, or verses 41 and 42, it says this, The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, he brought, Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Okay? Just said that it's through our relationships that we do this. But notice what he says. He says, we found the Messiah. Now, Peter knows what Andrew's talking about because he's a Jew who lives at the same time as Andrew. He's been raised to know about this prophecy of a Messiah who is supposed to come. And so he, like any good Jew, was anticipating the coming of the Messiah. He understood that this was a thing that he was searching for as much as Andrew was searching for. And here's the point. We need to think through what our friends and neighbors need. See, Jesus is the answer. But you need to know the question that your friend or neighbor is asking. We're not all asking the same question. And we're not all asking it at the same time. Let's say, okay, let's say you have a car and you want to give it to a friend, okay? How do you encourage them to take that car? Well, maybe your friend is really concerned about uh, the mileage. And you say, you know what? This is a very, very economical car. It's, it's a 2005 Nissan Sentra. It is about as cool as a car gets. Look at those lines. It's very aesthetically pleasing. Maybe they have children and they're worried about safety. And you say, it's just full of airbags. Airbags as far as the eye can see. It's a very, very safe vehicle. The point is, is that you, you understand what their need is and you speak to that need. And it's the same with the gospel. The gospel is very, very practical. The gospel is the answer to all our needs. If you don't understand how the gospel speaks to your personal needs and issues, then maybe you haven't really understood the gospel yourself and you better figure that out. We have a neighbor right now who's going through a number of things that have got her 
kind of freaked out. She's a wonderful lady, but she is very anxious. And we have had the opportunity to share the gospel with her in terms of God comforting us in our anxiety, that God is a God who loves us and cares for us and, and watches over us. It would do no good at that time for me to, to talk to her primarily about how, I don't know, about something. Well, I'm not going to try to make that up on the spot. The point is, she's got anxiety and worry. And so we can go to Scripture where Jesus says, don't worry because God, your Father, He loves you more than He loves the flowers of the field or the birds of the air, and He takes care of them. So, first thing is, you got to address the needs of your neighbor. Implication, very brief, very easy to know. you got to know your neighbor, what's going on in their life. You can't talk to someone about their anxiety if you don't know that they have anxiety, so get to know your neighbor. All right, second, bring them to Jesus. Well, okay, bring, how do you bring them to Jesus? It's pretty easy for Andrew to bring Peter to Jesus, right? Like Peter's there, or I mean, sorry, Jesus is there. Physically, literally, there, in the flesh. You can go, here, meet Jesus. And Jesus can say, hi, I'm Jesus. How do you help them meet Jesus when Jesus isn't here? Well, you need to introduce them to two things. You need to introduce them to the Word. Where did you meet Jesus? You meet Him in the Word. You need to introduce them to the Bible, and you need to say, hey, if you want to get to know Jesus, here's a Bible. You can read about Him, but here's another way. You can, you can introduce them to prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is conversation with God. And so you begin by saying, can I pray for you? And then eventually you say, can I pray with you? And I don't know a person in the world that, well, there, there may be someone who will say, no, don't pray for me, but I have never met them. I've never had anybody who I said, can I pray for you or can I pray with you, who they said, I don't want any of that. Weirdo, get lost. Nobody said that to me. They might. It might happen, but it's never happened to me. And once they're in your home, just be the family that you are. If you know Jesus, you will introduce them to Jesus. At your mealtimes, many of you do devotions. Keep doing devotions. Just tell them, this is what we do. We pray and we read the Bible and then do that. And they have an opportunity to be introduced to Jesus. But remember, okay, you're bringing them to introduce them to your Savior. Third thing, you've got to understand that this takes courage. And you've got to come up with the One of the reasons I think that we struggle to be friends uh, with others for Jesus is actually because of what happens to Philip. We have a great case study right here. Philip comes to Nathaniel and he says... And I love it. Like, he's got a lot to say. We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel responds with, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? <laughs> Not exactly a warm reception, right? Awkward. Nathan's not being grumpy. Or, sorry, Nathaniel is not being grumpy. He's actually... He's being insightful. He's asking actually a very good question. As a good Jew, Nathaniel knew that the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. 
Jesus is being introduced as this man from Nazareth. Nazareth is this dinky little podunk town in the northern part of the province. Nobody ever thinks of it. Nobody cares about it. It's got no history in the Old Testament or anything like that. And Nathaniel asks a really, really good question. And listen, there are, understand, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this, and some of you are going to freak out. There are good reasons not to believe in God. And if you're listening carefully, some of you hopefully are going, what? There's never a good reason not to believe in God. How can you say that? Ultimately, no. But initially, yes. Look, the world itself is a screwed up place. There's a lot of evil in the world. And there's a lot of people who are hearing God is good and God loves you. And then they, they look at what's going on in the world and they say, how does that work? That's a good question. There's a lot of people who have gone to university and have been hammered with the idea that the only thing that you can see in this, the only thing that's real in this world is the stuff you can see with your eyes, stuff you can measure with instruments. And you come along and you say, there is a being that you can't see with your eyes who, who exists from all eternity, and he loves you. And they say, hmm, that's a good question. There are people who are watching you say, but the Bible says, but the Bible says, but the Bible says, and they're going, um, have you read the Bible? There's some really weird stuff in that book, and some of it does not sound very nice at all. It sounds like God wants to just wipe everybody out for being bad, and you say that this is the Word of God, and what about the Quran? What about the Upanishads? What about... Plato, how come they're not the word of God? Like, these are good questions. And you've got to be prepared, whoops, to hear those good questions. And maybe you're afraid that that question will come and you'll be stumped and you'll look dumb and you're wondering, well, how do I get better at answering those questions? Well, the first way is that you practice for years and years and you screw up over and over and over again. And then you learn over time through trial and error What's the way to answer that question and what's not the way to answer that question? Or you can do what Philip did, which is he showed confident humility. This is the fourth point. Oh, by the way, one of the reasons we have pub talks is because of this very issue. So you can always bring him to pub talks. But have confident humility. So Nathaniel asks Philip this great question. It's a stumper. What does Philip do? Does he freak out? Does he get all defensive? And, and does his heart rate like go up and his blood pressure and all that kind of stuff? No. He says, uh, I don't know. Come and see. Let's find out. Let's study it together. He doesn't try to ram his opinion down Nathaniel's throat. He just says, come and see. Let's figure this out together. Listen, friends, Charles Spurgeon, great preacher of the 19th century, he once said this. He said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. Just let it loose. You don't have to defend it. If you're secure in your faith and you believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that he has done remarkable things in your life that, that are inexplicable any other way, you don't have to get defensive. You can just say, come and see. Come watch him at work in my messed up life. 
Come ask him yourself if who he is really is who he is. And you'll find out. That's exactly what Nathaniel did. Last point. He came and he saw Jesus. And it started. And, and they had a conversation. And I, you know, if I had another 40 minutes, we'd unpack that conversation because it's fascinating. But let me just point out the simple point I want to share with you right now, and it's this. Nathan had his, Nathaniel, sorry, had his own encounter with Jesus. Nathaniel didn't ultimately believe in Jesus because Philip was such a good arguer or because Philip told him to or because Philip said the right thing in the right way or anything like that. He represented Jesus well, I suppose, just in the sense that he invited Nathaniel to meet him. But Nathaniel believed because he had his encounter with Jesus. And you need to remember that. You need to remember that everybody has their encounter with Jesus. And it's not going to be the same as your encounter with Jesus. And it's not going to happen the way you expect it to happen because Jesus, he has a, he has a way of being unpredictable. You know, on July 22nd, I asked if I could do this, so don't wag your finger at me. I asked Mo if I could do this before. On July 22nd, Mo is going to be baptized. All right. Yeah. And I'm not going to steal his thunder because he will share his story with you a little bit on July 22nd. But he is a man who came to faith through hospitality because he basically spent two years coming and seeing in the life of a family. And at one point, he came to conclude this family is just does not make sense in any natural way. And they keep telling me that they're the way they are because of this Jesus guy. I have got to start figuring who, out who he is. And so that's what he did. And he ended up having his own encounter with Jesus. That's why you practice hospitality. That's why you love your neighbor. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, help us to love others the way you love us, which is unconditionally with infinite patience and kindness.